If you have a Bible, you can open to John 15. We'll look at the end of chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 16. The text is also printed in the bulletin there for you. Um, it's been a few weeks since my last Inklings reference, so I feel like we're long overdue. Uh, <clears throat> Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, wrote a book maybe you're familiar with, a series of books, actually, Lord of the Rings. The last one in the series, the trilogy, is The Return of the King. <clears throat> and uh, one of the main parts of that story is that the kingdom of Gondor is waiting for their king. <clears throat> they've, they've waited for a long time for the prophesied return of their king, the recovery and renewal of the royal line that was um, assumed to be broken and lost. <clears throat> and in the long interval that Gondor had gone without a true king, there had been a series of stewards appointed to watch over the kingdom, Servants whose role was to preserve the king, uh, preserve the kingdom for the king. That was their one job, right? Keep this kingdom a kingdom so that you can hand it over to the king when he comes. And uh, as probably all of you know, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, he's this mysterious, controversial figure, uh, and he's the rightful king. He's the noble king. He's rightful um, by both birthright and um, and by virtue. He deserves to be king for every reason conceivable. He's a good man, and his father descended from these kings. So rumor of his return from distant lands reached Gondor, who was waiting for their king. Uh, Should have meant preparation for his arrival. Should have meant great rejoicing. But Denethor was the steward of Gondor. He had one job, to deliver the kingdom to the true king, but Denethor was power-mad. He sought to retain the rule of Gondor for himself. He resisted the return of the king, and he opposed those who sided with the true king. He should have been loyal to the throne and to the kingdom, and he should have loved the king's coming and the news of it. He should have delighted in those who brought news of the restoration. He should have seen the return of the king as his own deliverance. Denethor should have seen it that way. He should have seen it as his own salvation and the fulfillment of all the purposes of his own life. He could have been Aragorn's friend. If you imagine it turning out differently than it did, he could have been Aragorn's friend. He could have been a hero at the king's side. But instead, he made himself an enemy. And his enmity to the king, because he basically wanted to be king for himself, his enmity would show itself in opposition to the king's companions. Uh, He would defy and impede those who were faithful to Aragorn because of their relationship to Aragorn, because of their association with the true king. So the steward rejected the king and his claim, and the king's friends, who are known as the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Uh, they would be the ones that would suffer for it. And all the while, the steward professed to be good, and he professed to be in the right serving and only working on behalf of the kingdom. And this is more than an example of good writing on Tolkien's part. Um, this is a clear picture. This is, this is a, a distillation of realities that the church has faced for thousands of years. The way that Denethor abuses his special role, the way that he treats the king and the king's friends is exactly how Jesus talks about opposition to his own lordship and by association, opposition that we as his people will encounter in the world. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. 
Father, as we consider your word, we pray for your help. We pray for your Spirit's help. Your Spirit has, um, thankfully, uh, had your words inscripturated for us so that we can read them. We've got them in front of us and we can hear them. We can consider your words. Now we pray for your, your Spirit's help in our hearts and in our minds to make us to receive your word and be changed by your word into the likeness of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a, great, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled, They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So Jesus is about to die. It's in the upper room. He's with his disciples for these last few moments. He's, he's about to die. He's uh, betrayed by one of his own disciples, handed to the, the Jewish religious leaders, who, to continue on with the sort of the Tolkien, Lord of the Rings parallel, the Jewish religious leaders are like Denethor. They were set up uh, to watch over the kingdom until the king comes, right? And Jesus is going to be handed over to them to be killed by them and to be killed by the Roman officials, the Roman government, uh, by crucifixion. And that's Rome, Rome, if you want to give a parallel to Lord of the Rings, is like Sauron, just the, the... black, dark armies that are going to cover the earth with fear. So he's being handed over to both and he's for crucifixion, and he's, he's been telling the disciples about this for some time now, but the hour is now at hand, and things are getting serious, and it's starting to sink in to the disciples. They still aren't able to fully process everything that he's talking about, but they are becoming distressed by the thought that he is about to die, probably mostly because of what... Um, what it means for them. They're, they're afraid of what will happen next to them after Jesus dies. <clears throat> so what he's talking about here might seem like he's just piling on the bad news. <laughs> Let me confirm for you, your worst fears are going to come true. The opposition that I'm facing that is about to result in my death, you're going to face the very same opposition because of our relationship, and I'm saying this now so that you won't be surprised when it happens. Just get ready. And so they probably burst into a fresh round of tears at that point. Jesus 
is not saying these things to rub salt in their wounds, to pile on bad news. He wants them to remember these things. That's explicit. He wants them to remember these things. And part of the Holy Spirit's ministry, when he would come at Pentecost to the church, um, would be to, to bring to their remembrance things like this. There's got to be a good reason for that. There's got to be a good reason. In fact, Jesus is saying these things to encourage his disciples, not just, to, not just so that they'll live in fear of the coming persecution. He's saying it to encourage them, to strengthen them as they face opposition, when the time comes, when the hour comes, <clears throat> so that they'd be ready to be strengthened as they face opposition for his name's sake. Everything that he's saying to them comes to pass almost immediately. If you're just reading sort of the chronological, historical timeline in the scriptures, uh, within a few months, everything that he's saying comes to pass. You don't have to look any further than the early chapters of Acts. So after Jesus dies, after he's raised from the dead, after everything changes, because he's raised from the dead and he ascends into heaven and he pours out the Spirit on his church after ascension and Pentecost there, the disciples are starting to feel pressure from these, the Jewish religious authorities, the Denethor, the, the same people that had persecuted Jesus to death. Chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Acts, the apostles are arrested and, and beaten and threatened. Chapters 6 and 7, Stephen is seized and interrogated and, um, and actually killed. He's the first martyr of the church first one to die after Jesus. He's stoned to death by the Jews, the religious leaders, the people who persecuted the first Christians. They profess to be good. They profess to be on God's side. They profess to be in the right and serving and working on God's behalf. And Saul was prominent among these persecutors. He was present when Stephen was stoned to death. He approved of the execution. Uh, in chapter 8 of Acts, says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And in chapter 9, it says he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he was zealous. Saul was very zealous in his persecution of the church and actually attacking people because of their association with Jesus. And he was well known for, for that zeal, and he was feared for it. <clears throat> so Jesus said in our passage, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, that's how bad it's going to be, they're actually going to kill you, will think he's offering service to God like Saul did. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. So here's one of the several places in our passage where Jesus is explaining why this is all going to happen to them. Why the disciples, why his church will face the persecution that they're going to face. He says it several times in different ways in our passage. It's because ultimately the persecutors, people who are ravaging the church and attacking Christians... Ultimately, they've not known the Father nor Jesus. That's why they're doing it. That's why Christians are suffering. It's because persecutors have not known God. They've not known the one true God as he's revealed himself through Jesus Christ to be Father. 
Jesus is saying that there's such a close connection between himself and us that people will treat us the same way that they would treat him, the same way they would treat Jesus. And he's saying that the important thing to know about the treatment that we receive, the persecution that we face, is that really it's a matter between the persecutor and God. Really is a matter between uh, the persecutor, the one doing the persecuting, and God the Father, and, and between Jesus. It's because the persecutor doesn't know God, doesn't know Jesus. So really it's, it's a matter between Denethor and Aragorn, right? Even though the, the Fellowship of the Ring is getting in the way, sort of, and taking the punishment uh, of this conflict, it is a matter between the, the steward and the true king. There's so much we can say about this reality. And um, I wish we had time to do sermon discussion today because there's a lot to talk about here. But let's just continue on with Saul. As an illustration at this point, Saul was one of the most notorious persecutors. He was one of the most zealous persecutors of the early church. And he was on his way to Damascus, from Jerusalem to Damascus, to hunt down Christians there to bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment. And Jesus met him on the road. Um, Jesus stopped him in his tracks on the road to Damascus. And do you remember what Jesus' first words were to Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's persecuting the church. He's going after Christians. He's doing them harm. <clears throat> but Jesus himself, the, ascended and, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus, says, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus is away in heaven. No evil forces can touch him there. He's out of the reach of any harm forever. And instead of pointing out that Saul, this persecutor, was persecuting his people, which he was doing, he said that Saul was persecuting him. There is such a close connection between Jesus and his disciples that it's more than just being treated in a similar way. We're not just being treated in a similar way to Jesus. His disciples are receiving his own treatment. The treatment that that Jesus would get if he were here in the flesh, the disciples are receiving it. The association between Jesus and his church is so real, the connection, the relationship is so real that others are said to be interacting with Jesus himself as they interact with his disciples who are in union with him, his disciples who are representing him. The world responds to Jesus himself in and through its response to Christians. So Saul was persecuting Jesus Christ himself in and through his persecution of the church, of Christians. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. So Jesus isn't just warning us about having to endure hard times. He is that. He's saying it so that we won't be scandalized, he says in, in uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Uh, so we won't be taken by surprise. But he's also highlighting the tremendous significance of our spiritual relationship with him. 
tremendous significance. It's sort of like this. Traditionally, at least when a man and a woman marry, the wife uh, takes her new husband's name. She changes her name. In a sense, it kind of represents becoming a new person. It represents or at least symbolizes the effects of their union. Now the two are one in such a way that she's been changed forever and everything belonging to him now belongs to her too and vice versa, right? But um, for the sake of this illustration, his family name, his name becomes hers. His home becomes hers. His possessions, his wealth or his debt becomes hers. His relationships become hers. In a sense, his parents his siblings, his friends, they all become her parents and siblings and friends. And when you treat her in a certain way, you can't help the fact that you're also treating him that way because of their close association, their relationship. So if you profess to be his friend, but you treat her poorly, then actually you're treating him poorly, not like a friend would treat and the association is all the stronger the more the couple think and act alike. Right? If the husband's character is rubbing off on his wife so that she's starting to become more like him and, and you, you hate those character traits in her, actually you're hating the character traits that belong to him. Right? And that's the kind of association Jesus has given us by his grace. Through faith, by the power of the Spirit, we are united to him, and Christians now bear his name in the world, and everything that belongs to Jesus, he's shared with us. His home is our home. His relationships are our relationships. And the first and most important place we see this reality, we think about it all the time with our salvation, is in our relationship with God the Father. He's our Father because he's Jesus' Father. And because we're in close union, close association, personal relationship with Jesus, now he's also our father. When the father looks at Jesus and he looks at us, he sees such a union that he treats us the way that he's treating his son. And that association is true not just in Jesus' relationship with the father, but in all of Jesus' relationships. That association is true. The world treats us the the way the world treats Jesus. All the more so when we represent him in more than just name. Right? If his character traits are starting to rub off on us, then all the more will they treat us like they would treat Jesus as we live more and more like him in the world. So now if if you're just suffering and you want to call persecution something that you're suffering because you're a condemning jerk or a racist or a misogynist or evil in some way, otherwise a sinner. That's not persecution by association. That's not what Jesus is talking about, right? Actually, in First uh, Peter <clears throat> chapter 4, this gets addressed, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. 
Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So this is wonderful news that Peter's talking about here, that Jesus, really, Peter picked it up from Jesus. He's talking about in our passage, this is wonderful news that we have such a close relationship with Jesus. Not because anyone is particularly thrilled to suffer persecution, which frequently characterized Jesus' life on earth, but because of what that means. We've been given the privilege of identifying with Jesus completely. In fact, this is the same kind of identification that Jesus himself shares with the Father. The same kind of mutual identification so that when people treat Jesus in a certain way, really they're treating God the Father in that same way. Because Jesus and his Father are one. He says that several times in our passage. In verse 23, whoever hates me hates my Father also. Right? So our close association with Jesus mirrors his close association with the Father. We have the same kind of mutual vicarious identification with Jesus that he does with the Father because the same spirit that Jesus and the Father share, Jesus shares with us. We've We've been given the divine privilege of identifying with Jesus. Everything that's true of him is now true of us. So much so that when we are mistreated, Jesus says these offenses are against him and against God. That's how close the relationship is. There is no closer relationship imaginable. It isn't possible for people to share more between them than what the Father and the Son share between them, and now what Jesus shares with us, what we share with him. There's no closer relationship even conceivable. In our salvation, he shares the Father's approval with us, and on the flip side, he shares the world's rejection with us. But the thing to hold on to through all of these things is that these things are true because he shares himself with us. He shares his own life. He shares his own spirit That's the thing to rejoice about. This close association is seen throughout the Bible. Uh, God is speaking to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 3, and he says, look, you're going to go and you're going to proclaim to these people things that they they don't want to hear. But he says that the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you because they're not willing to listen to me. So that close association there. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul Uh, who was Saul the persecutor, Paul says, we're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance of death to death, to the other a fragrance of life to life. We're God's ambassadors. We're Christ's, we're the, the very, we smell like Jesus to people, right? And that means death for some and it means life for others. So Rodney Whitaker says that the, the disciples are actually experiencing the deep-seated rebellion of sinful humanity against the Father himself, against Jesus. And Jesus says it's against the Father if it's against me. So the conflict, Whitaker says, the conflict they experience is part of something much bigger than themselves. Much bigger. That can be encouraging for us, I think. Here's something important for us to consider. And when we find ourselves on the receiving end of the world's treatment of Jesus... 
when the world is treating us in his place. We might be experiencing the pain, but that's not the most important thing. When sinners sin against God by sinning against us, we might be experiencing the pain. It really does hurt. That's real. But the heart of the conflict that we're experiencing, the heart of that is the ruptured relationship between them and God. That's what Jesus says. Because they don't know the Father, but they don't know Jesus. That's the real issue. And it's just being expressed in our mistreatment, in our persecution. In a sense, because of our close association with Christ, when we suffer persecution in his name, it isn't about us. It isn't really about us. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. It is lamentable that you are persecuted, but the greatest lament of that conflict, of that reality, the greatest lament is that your persecutors don't know Christ, as is evidenced by their treatment of you. They are not, however, a lost cause. Jesus says, sort of leaves the door open there. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. Right? Look at Saul, the notorious and zealous enemy of Christ. Jesus brought Saul all the way in. This close personal connection. He shared everything with Saul, changed him, changed his nature, changed his name to Paul, revealed God the Father to him in ways that changed everything for his, for his life, showed him how much now Paul must suffer in his association with Jesus. And Paul delighted in it. He rejoiced in it, not because he was masochistic, Right, Not in the pain of suffering, per se, but in what that meant for his relationship with Jesus. It meant that he was in one. Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes, To live is Christ. To die is gain. Is gain. The world killed Jesus. You'd think that to die normally is not gain, but loss. But with Jesus, you see it because he was resurrected from the dead. And now he rules over all things. And he's at God's right hand. And he's our Savior. And he has the victory. For Christ, death was gain. And the world might kill us. But because of Jesus, the resurrected one, and our relationship with him, to, to die is not our loss. To die is gain. This isn't the fellowship of the ring where death separates one from another. You die on the battlefield and the fellowship is broken. This is the fellowship of the Spirit. Where our union with Christ will only be strengthened if we're persecuted to death. This is what Saul, the persecutor, learned about God in the gospel. And it changed everything about him. And now he rejoices because of his relationship with Jesus. This is what every persecutor might learn might learn about Jesus. When you face persecution for your association with Christ, hopefully not only because you bear his name 
but because his, his character is rubbing off on you and you're representing him in more ways in the world, when you face persecution on his behalf, don't be surprised, Jesus says. Don't be scandalized. Don't be alarmed. Don't dismay. Your relationship with Jesus is real, and it's secure. When you face persecution, see it as an expression of the persecutor's broken relationship with God. And give attention to that. And pray for that. Pray for them to know Christ just as you've been privileged to know him and to suffer on his behalf. Pray that you might be a witness to Jesus during that time. That's what Jesus says in our passage. In loving like that, in Jesus' name, and being concerned for the good of your persecutor, for their relationship with Jesus, in Christ's very place, in a world that is hostile to him, you will bear witness to his great love for people like us. And maybe a persecutor will come to know God. Maybe. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would come to know you, that um, your word about your son, the gospel of Jesus Christ, would not be empty, meaningless words to us, but it would mean everything to us. Our relationship with him as a gift of your grace would mean everything to us, and it would be what sustains us as we go through life in this world, receiving all sorts of treatment in Jesus' place. First and foremost, uh, receiving the treatment that he deserves as your beloved son, knowing that we also are your beloved, and that that will never change but then also uh, receiving the world's rejection of Jesus in his place. We delight to think that our relationship with Jesus could be that close. Um, We pray that you would teach us more about this close association, teach us more about your love, about the spirit who unites us to Jesus, so that when we come to that hour, if and when we face persecution, even if we're killed for the sake of Christ, we would remember these things. We'd remember the gospel and our life with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.